Testing, one, two, three. Testing, one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon, on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, The Restoration Proclamation. With tonight's episode, we commence our analysis of the April General Conference of 2020. This is the conference that we were told in advance by President Russell M. Nelson that we needed to take our vitamins for, that we were primed to expect something wonderful, something amazing, something maybe even prophetic. But the general feeling among those who watched April 2020 General Conference was one of being let down, that their expectations were not fulfilled, and that really, April 2020 General Conference seemed to be pretty much business as usual. Now, obviously, the setup for the conference in a much smaller conference room that was empty, except for the three leaders at the front sitting in their high-backed crushed velvet chairs, and whoever it is who might have been speaking at the time. The setup, the mise-en-scene, was indeed different as a result of the coronavirus, of course, which everybody knows is going on and which is why they had this different kind of setup. But other than that, it seemed to be very much business as usual. The coronavirus itself was hardly even mentioned during the course of General Conference. It was almost as if General Conference was once again hermetically sealed in some way from the outside world and had little to no interaction with what was actually going on just outside the doors. And we found out by the end of General Conference that what it was that President Nelson was so excited about six months ago and that he was telling us that we needed to be excited about ended up being a new church logo and a new proclamation, the Restoration Proclamation. The presentation of both of these items, the logo and the proclamation, given as they were in the context of this worldwide pandemic, struck some as a little bit tone deaf. This was certainly President Nelson's moment to shine if he chose to do so. Let me tell you what I mean. In this church, we are very fond of telling the story about the famous General Conference in October of 1856. Now, this was the time when the William Martin handcart companies were experiencing great difficulty, hardship, and even starvation, and death from exposure to the elements and the cold along the Sweetwater River near the Continental Divide. Word reached Salt Lake City in early October of 1856 of the predicament that the William Martin handcart company were in, and on October 5th, I believe it was, 1856, when the church was meeting in general conference, Brigham Young and the other speakers did away with their regularly scheduled talks and instead called upon church members to provide wagons, mules, supplies, and teamsters for a rescue mission. As I say, we tend to love telling the story in the LDS church because it's a great story. Why? Because it shows Mormonism in action, not just Mormonism up there teaching and teaching and talking and talking. It shows Mormons in action, taking action to go out and help those who are in need, desperate need of their relief. It is against this backdrop that President Nelson got up and addressed the General Conference in April of 2020, where it is not a handcart company that is stranded in the blizzard in need of rescue. Instead, it is a worldwide pandemic, the likes of which we have not seen in our lifetime. And so many Latter-day Saints, I think, were hopeful and expectant that President Nelson would stand up in general conference and say something to the effect of recognizing the worldwide pandemic, the terrible affliction this was causing to members of the church, both physically and economically, and that President Nelson would announce some sort of rescue, some sort of measures in order to help alleviate that distress, that President Nelson would come to the rescue. And whether that amounted to giving every member some sort of stimulus check 
out of the EPA account or something else. What we do know is that that is definitely not what happened. There was no rescue for the members of the church announced by President Nelson in general conference. Instead, he went ahead with business as usual and presented the new church logo and the restoration proclamation. This is why it struck so many people as tone deaf. And maybe, maybe President Nelson should have talked about something that was much more needful, called the saints to action, organized the leadership of the church, provided supplies to the members of the church, and announced a program that was going to facilitate that distribution of supplies. But as I say, he just went ahead with the new church logo and the proclamation. Now, this reminds me of an experience I had when I was fresh back from my mission in 1981. I got back from my mission to Japan, November of 1981, and back then, what newly returned missionaries did was they went around to the different wards in the stake in the company of a high councilman. And at the different wards, during the sacrament meeting, the newly returned missionary would get up and speak for maybe 15 minutes at the beginning of the meeting, and then the high councilman would take over and cover the rest of the meeting. So this is what I did during the first several months after I returned from my mission. I was going around with a high councilman to the different wards and branches in Austin, Texas, and delivering a 10 to 15 minute talk at the beginning of every sacrament meeting. Well, I had a great talk that I had prepared. It wasn't so much doctrinal or doctrinal in nature. Instead, it was a talk about the future and how the future was full of possibilities and dreams and how we needed to have goals and fulfill those goals and go out and take the world by the throat and go out there and do everything that we could do and be everything that we could possibly be. It was a very hopeful, very forward-thinking kind of talk. It was hopefully inspirational in that regard, and I got a lot of good feedback from it when I gave that talk initially at the student ward at the Institute Building in Austin, Texas. Well, that talk was so favorably received that I decided that was going to be my stump speech, and that was a talk I was going to give when I went around to the different wards and branches with the high councilman. Okay, now, on one particular Sunday, we went up way north in Austin, and we went to a branch of the Latter-day Saints, and this branch was established in a retirement community. So when I got up to the stand to give my talk, I'm looking out at a sea of faces, and they are all 60 and 70 years old. There are no middle-aged people there. There are no kids in this entire branch. They are all older people. And here I am, set to go with my talk that I prepared, which is a talk not for an older audience, but it's a talk for a younger audience. It's a talk for youth. It's a talk about the future, as I've already described. And I started giving this talk, and about halfway through the talk, I started realizing how badly this talk fit the audience how these people are at the end of their lives. They're all retired. And here I'm talking about a point of view from the beginning of your life and all the goals and dreams you have going forward. It just did not match at all. And I remember starting to feel increasingly embarrassed by the fact that I was giving a talk to an audience where that talk was so tone deaf. But I'm very young. I'm 21 years old at the time. I've got my script and I'm going to stick with my script and I'm going to give my talk the way I have it prepared in spite of the fact that more and more I'm realizing this is a bad talk to give to this audience. Now, in the same way, I would think or like to think that President Nelson or one of his counselors, at least, or somebody in the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles would talk to President Nelson prior to the conference and say, hey, maybe this isn't the best time to go forward and present the new church logo. Maybe this isn't the best time to go forward and present the new proclamation. 
why don't we save that for the next general conference and instead let's talk about things that actually apply to the real needs of the members of the church, many of whom are in desperate straits right now. Let's do what Brigham Young did back in general conference in 1856 and let's go to the rescue. We have the ability, we have the means, all we need is the will and the desire and a plan and a little bit of leadership. I mean, it was only a few months ago when the existence of this $100 billion account with the EPA fund was leaked to the public, and then we were told by church leaders that this was a rainy day fund, and it was there specifically for the purpose of helping out the church in case of a rainy day. Well, not many months later, we've got that rainy day. We've got a worldwide pandemic. We've got members of the church suffering in very real ways. And yet, it does not appear that President Nelson or anybody else is willing to open that purse and begin helping out the members with those supplies. And by the way, that purse is full because of the faithful contributions of members over the years and the investment of those contributions. It's not like you would be giving something to the members that they didn't actually already give you first. But no, instead, very much the same way that I was hell-bent on giving my talk to that older group of people, a talk that was tone deaf back in late 1981. In the same way, President Nelson goes forward with his presentation of the new church logo and the proclamation. And by the way, at the very end of General Conference, something else that might have been a bit tone deaf. I'm just going to suggest that it might not have been the best time for President Nelson to announce in enthusiastic tones the building of a new temple in Shanghai, China. Okay, I'm just saying maybe that could have waited another six months. Maybe that wasn't the best time to make that particular announcement. But President Nelson went forward with presenting this new proclamation. And what I want to do tonight is I want to get into the guts of that proclamation. First off, I want to compare it with a very similar proclamation that was made in 1980 in April General Conference then. That was for the sesquicentennial of the organization of the church at the Whitmer Farmhouse in New York. And they did something very special for that. They had a proclamation, but not only that, they actually flew, and by that I mean Spencer Kimball and some other church leaders, including Gordon B. Hinckley, flew from Salt Lake City after one session of General Conference. They flew by jet out to New York so that they could appear in the Whitmer farmhouse and broadcast live from that location. That was unusual. That was memorable. And it kind of made me wonder if there might have been a similar plan in place that was thwarted by the COVID-19 epidemic of President Nelson personally going to the Sacred Grove and broadcasting live from that location. We know that he went there at some point prior to conference and taped his reading of the new proclamation from the Sacred Grove. And the only reason I wonder about this is because in advance of conference, I had wondered if similarly to the way in 1980, some of the church leadership went to New York to broadcast live from the Whitmer Farmhouse, that maybe some of the leadership would do a similar thing in 2020, go out to New York and broadcast live from there. I don't know if that's why President Nelson was so excited about this general conference and why he wanted us to be excited if that was the plan. And if that plan got changed because of the coronavirus, I guess I'll never know. But it would have been similar to what they did in 1980. So once again, back in 1980, April General Conference, Spencer W. Kimball introduced the new proclamation, which was then read by Gordon B. Hinckley, who was an apostle. Now, I went on the church website, which does have General Conference back through 1980, so I can look up the talks there, and I can look up the video there. 
and I went to play the video of Gordon B. Hinckley reading the 1980 proclamation on the Restoration, but it would not play. I could play Spencer Kimball's introduction immediately before, and I could play the talk immediately after, but I could not play, for some reason, Gordon B. Hinckley's actual reading of the proclamation. And I don't know why that would be. It seems unusual, but maybe it's just a glitch in my computer. Let me try it again and see if I have any better luck this morning. Okay, I go to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints webpage. By the way, the new logo is the biggest square on the homepage of the LDS Church's website. That is the big announcement, the new church symbol introduced. And then next to it, it says, A Bicentennial Proclamation to the World, the Restoration of the Fullness of the Gospel, of Jesus Christ. So those were the two big announcements in General Conference. Those are the two big announcements on the church homepage. But I go to Scriptures and Study. I click down to General Conference. I go to Conferences. I click All Conferences. I go to April 1980. I go down to the Sunday morning session. There's the introduction to the proclamation by Spencer W. Kimball at the Whitmer Farmhouse. I can play that. I go to the proclamation read by Gordon B. Hinckley. Immediately under that, I click on that. The page comes up. There is no text there. I click on it, and it does not allow me to play it. It says, the video cloud video was not found. For some reason, it appears to have been taken down. I go to the talk immediately after that, which are further remarks by Spencer Kimball, and I can play that fine. Okay, so for whatever reason, and I'm not going to speculate too much on what that reason might be, for whatever reason, on the LDS Church's webpage, if you go to the April 1980 General Conference, go to the Sunday morning session, you click on the proclamation there, as read by Gordon B. Hinckley, and you tell me if it comes up and if it works for you. It looks like somebody might be monkeying with the LDS Church website for the April 1980 General Conference. And why that might be, I have no idea. Now, I want to go to... The actual text of the 1980 proclamation, because one of the curious things, as I've mentioned, is that this new proclamation really seems to be pretty much a rehash of the old proclamation. This new restoration proclamation presented by President Nelson in the most recent general conference covers the same ground as the 1980 proclamation, again dealing with the subject of the restoration. In fact, in some places, the new proclamation so closely mirrors the language of the old proclamation that it appears that the old proclamation may have served as a template for creating the new one. Now, because I cannot play the audio of Gordon B. Hinckley reading the proclamation, I'm going to read it to you myself. And I'll try and read it somewhat quickly. I want to make a couple of comments about it first. Number one, I've already said that it covers basically the same elements as the new proclamation. Number two, I think the language is a little bit better. It's a little bit more elegant than the new proclamation. To me, it seems more inspiring than the new proclamation. And I think that when I compare the first proclamation with the second proclamation, what I can trace is the rise of the lawyers in the LDS church, the rise of committees who write things for the LDS church. Because when I read things that are produced by the LDS church today, they sound much more like they're written by a committee. They sound much more bloodless. They sound much more boring in a word than things that were written back when I had joined the church. And I've wondered sometimes, is that just my imagination? But now that I look at this proclamation from 1980 and I read it, I can sense a difference in the way things are articulated back then from the way they are articulated today. And this is a great case in point. It's hard to actually describe and put in words. I'll try and point out instances of it as we go along if they strike me. But let's go on with this proclamation from April 6, 1980. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints was organized 150 years ago today. 
On this sesquicentennial anniversary, we issue to the world a proclamation concerning its progress, its doctrine, its mission, and its message. On April 6, 1830, a small group assembled in the farmhouse of Peter Whitmer in Fayette Township in the state of New York. Remember, that's where they're broadcasting this from. Six men participated in the formal organization procedures with Joseph Smith as their leader. From that modest beginning in a rural area, the work has grown consistently and broadly as men and women in many lands have embraced the doctrine and entered the waters of baptism. There are now almost four and a half million living members, and the church is stronger and growing more rapidly than at any time in its history. Let me stop there for a second because that is one element from the 1980 proclamation that is not going to be repeated in the 2020 proclamation, this idea that the church is growing more rapidly than at any time in its history. It was certainly true in 1980. It is not true now in 2020, and so that's going to be a big difference. We're not going to have that kind of a sentiment in the new proclamation going on. Congregations of Latter-day Saints are found throughout North, Central, and South America, in the nations of Europe, in Asia, in Africa, in Australia, and the islands of the South Pacific, and in other areas of the world. The gospel restored through the instrumentality of Joseph Smith is presently taught in 46 languages and in 81 nations. From that small meeting held in a farmhouse a century and a half ago, the church has grown until today it includes nearly 12,000 organized congregation. So you can see this idea of growth, this expansiveness, this idea of optimism for the future of the church in the world and the way the work is progressing. That's part of the inspiration of this message. Once again, it's an inspiration that I find decidedly lacking in the recent proclamation. Going on to the next paragraph, now the 1980 proclamation will talk about the first vision that will be repeated in the new proclamation, but here's how it puts it there. We testify that this restored gospel was introduced into the world by the marvelous appearance of God, the eternal father and his son, the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. That most glorious manifestation marked the beginning of the fulfillment of the promise of Peter, who prophesied of the times of restitution of all things, which God hath spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. This in preparation for the coming of the Lord to reign personally upon the earth, Acts chapter 3, verse 21. So that's the paragraph on the first vision. We're going to find an almost identical paragraph on the first vision in the new proclamation. In fact, I believe it also is going to cite to this same passage from Peter talking about it being a fulfillment of the restitution of all things. That's how closely, in some respects, the new proclamation on the restoration mirrors the proclamation on the restoration from 1980. The 1980 proclamation goes on and it talks about priesthood restoration. We solemnly affirm that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, see that was the name of the church back then as well, is in fact a restoration of the church established by the Son of God. When in mortality he organized his work upon the earth. We're going to find that exact same sentiment in the new proclamation. That it carries his sacred name even the name of Jesus Christ. That it is built upon a foundation of apostles and prophets, he being the chief cornerstone. And now the part about the priesthood, that its priesthood in both the Aaronic and Melchizedek orders was restored under the hands of those who held it anciently. John the Baptist in the case of the Aaronic and Peter, James, and John in the case of the Melchizedek. There's also sort of a, a brevity of the language and the way it simply synopsizes these important points in the orthodox telling of church history and these important events that gives it an additional power. I feel. Now it goes on and talks about the Book of Mormon. Once again, we'll find that echoed in the new proclamation. Is there anything new under the sun? I don't know. Is there anything new in the new proclamation on the restoration? Precious little. 
We declare that the Book of Mormon was brought forth by the gift and power of God, and that it stands beside the Bible as another witness of Jesus the Christ, the Savior and Redeemer of mankind. Together, they testify of His divine sonship. We're going to find those sentiments almost exactly echoed in the new proclamation. And that's all they have to say about the Book of Mormon. They go on to talk about temples in the next paragraph. Once again, the 1980 proclamation. We give our witness that the doctrines and practices of the church encompass salvation and exaltation, not only for those who are living, but also for the dead. And that in sacred temples built for this purpose, a great vicarious work is going forward in behalf of those who have died, so that all men and women of all generations may become the beneficiaries of the saving ordinances of the gospel of the Master. This great selfless labor is one of the distinguishing features of this restored Church of Jesus Christ. The next paragraph talks about eternal families. We affirm the sanctity of the family as a divine creation and declare that God our eternal Father will hold parents accountable to rear their children in light and truth, teaching them to pray and to walk uprightly before the Lord. We teach that the most sacred of all relationships, those family associations of husbands and wives and parents and children, may be continued eternally when marriage is solemnized under the authority of the holy priesthood exercised in temples dedicated for these divinely authorized purposes. See how this 1980 proclamation packs so much information in every sentence. That's one of the hallmarks of good writing, I think. Or at least good proclamation writing. The next paragraph talks about the plan of salvation, briefly. We bear witness that all men and women are sons and daughters of God, each accountable to Him, that our lives here on earth are part of an eternal plan, that death is not the end, but rather a transition from this to another sphere of purposeful activity, made possible through the atonement of the Redeemer of the world, and that we shall there have the opportunity of working and growing toward perfection. The next paragraph touches on the idea of continuing revelation in the church. We testify that the spirit of prophecy and revelation is among us. We believe all that God has revealed, all that he does now reveal, and we believe that he will yet reveal many great and important things pertaining to the kingdom of God. The heavens are not sealed. God continues to speak to his children through a prophet in power to declare his word now as he did anciently. Then it goes on to the next paragraph, which deals with the missionary effort of the church. The mission of the church today, as it has been from the beginning, is to teach the gospel of Christ to all the world in obedience to the commandment given by the Savior prior to his ascension and repeated in modern revelation. Go ye into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature, acting in the authority which I have given you, baptizing in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. The next several paragraphs, it quotes Doctrine and Covenants, section 1, verses 1 through 4. Through the prophet Joseph Smith, the Lord revealed these words of solemn warning. Hearken ye people from afar, and ye that are upon the isles of the sea, listen together. For verily the voice of the Lord is unto all men, and there is none to escape. And there is no eye that shall not see, neither ear that shall not hear, neither heart that shall not be penetrated. And the rebellious shall be pierced with much sorrow. For their iniquity shall be spoken upon the housetops, and their secret acts shall be revealed. And the voice of warning shall be unto all people by the mouths of my disciples, whom I have chosen in these last days. Now you will notice that this 1980 proclamation is a great deal longer than the new proclamation. I would say it's probably roughly twice as long as the new proclamation. And I think the reason for that is because the new proclamation was specifically designed apparently in order to fit one page in two columns and be suitable for framing and hung on the walls of the homes of faithful Latter-day Saints where I expect to appear presently. 
1980 proclamation goes on and touches on the first principles and ordinances of the gospel. It is our obligation, therefore, to teach faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, to plead with the people of the earth for individual repentance, to administer the sacred ordinances of baptism by immersion for the remission of sins, and the laying on of hands for the gift of the Holy Ghost. All of this under the authority of the priesthood of God. So we get priesthood authority thrown in there as well. The next paragraph, interestingly, talks about education and activity in the church. It is our responsibility to espouse and follow an inspired program of instruction and activity and to build and maintain appropriate facilities for the accomplishment of this, that all who will hear and accept may grow in understanding of doctrine and develop in principles of Christian service to their fellow men. There is not a direct corollary to that particular paragraph in the new proclamation. The next paragraph is somewhat inspiring. It refers to the heritage that the leaders of the church in 1980 have received from the prior leaders of the church and from the pioneer ancestors, and that now this torch has been passed to them and they must pass it forward to future generations. Here's what that says. As we stand today on the summit of 150 years of progress, we contemplate humbly and gratefully, we'll find humbly and gratefully in the new proclamation too, we contemplate humbly and gratefully the sacrifices of those who have gone before us many of whom gave their lives in testimony of this truth. We are thankful for their faith, for their example, for their mighty labors and willing consecrations for this cause, which they considered more precious than life itself. They have passed to us a remarkable heritage. We are resolved to build on that heritage for the blessing and benefit of those who follow, who will constitute ever-enlarging numbers of faithful men and women throughout the world. There's once again that optimistic vision of the future of the church, that it will constitute ever enlarging numbers of faithful men and women throughout the earth. Once again, we're not going to hear a lot of that in the new proclamation. And indeed, the next paragraph goes on to elaborate upon that idea about the church filling the earth. And we see once again quoted that passage from Daniel, which doesn't seem to be quoted a whole lot in the church anymore. The one about the stone cut out of the mountain and rolling forth to fill the whole earth. This is God's work. The proclamation says, this is God's work. It is his kingdom we are building. Anciently, the prophet Daniel spoke of it as a stone cut out of the mountain without hands, which was to roll forth to fill the whole earth. Now, I talked about this in my three-part episode, Lies, Damn Lies, and Statistics, and I showed many examples of how often this prophecy from Daniel was quoted in earlier days of the church by church leaders, and it was seen as being fulfilled and would continue to be fulfilled as the membership of the church would continue to increase across the world. Once again, we don't hear a lot about that anymore. Hmm, wonder why. Going on. We invite the honest in heart. This is part of the same paragraph. We invite the honest in heart everywhere to listen to the teachings of our missionaries who are sent forth as messengers of eternal truth to study and learn and to ask God, our eternal Father, in the name of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, if these things are true. And here there's going to be a definite echo of this in the new proclamation as well. Here they're going to quote from Moroni chapter 10, 4 through 5, Moroni's promise. They don't make the quote in the new proclamation, but they do repeat that same idea of the invitation to non-members to study and pray to find out that these things are true. I won't quote Moroni's promise here. It's quoted in the proclamation itself. And finally, it concludes with this paragraph, which is basically a call to repentance to the entire world. We call upon all men and women to forsake evil and turn to God, to work together to build that brotherhood, which must be recognized when we truly come to know that God is our Father and we are His children, and to worship Him and His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior of mankind. 
in the authority of the holy priesthood in us vested, we bless the seekers of truth wherever they may be, and invoke the favor of the Almighty upon all men and nations whose God is the Lord. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. So, once again, it's not the Gettysburg Address, but I do see and sense a kind of elegance and a kind of power and a kind of optimism and a kind of inspiration in this proclamation from 1980 that I find pretty much absent from the new proclamation which we're going to go to at this point. But before we get to the new proclamation, I want to make a few comments. The first is a question. Why have a new proclamation that covers basically the same material and in really an inferior way as the 1980 proclamation? It seems that President Nelson was casting about for something to do to make this April 2020 conference special. It is the 200th anniversary of Joseph Smith's first vision. What are we going to do? Well, they thought about maybe building a structure of some sort, perhaps a commemorative statue or something in the sacred grove, but they decided not to do that. Instead, they decided to come up with a proclamation. Okay, well, what kind of proclamation are we going to have? These discussions must have been held. Well, it's the 200th anniversary of Joseph Smith's first vision, so let's have it about the first vision. Surely we can come up with enough language about the first vision to fill a one-page proclamation that people can hang on their walls. I mean, that is really the focus of the celebration, right? But no, apparently that idea if considered, I'm thinking it probably was, was rejected. They didn't want to fill an entire document, even the one page, with details about the first vision. Maybe they thought that might be going into areas they'd rather not go into, and possibly raising questions that they would rather not have raised. Instead, the first vision just gets a brief mention, and then it talks about all these other elements in church history that constitute the Restoration, just the same way as the 1980 proclamation did. So once again, why have this proclamation? It almost seems like we're having a proclamation for the sake of having a proclamation. So let's go now to the new proclamation. And this was played in general conference. When I say played, what I mean is that there was a pre-recorded video of President Russell M. Nelson at the Sacred Grove where he read the proclamation and introduced it to the membership of the church for the first time. This was a big surprise. Nobody knew this was coming outside of the top leadership of the church. This was supposed to be the high point of General Conference. And obviously it's a high point if you're going to fly out to New York and have this specially recorded in the Sacred Grove. Now I will say that in the introduction to this proclamation that is available on the church website, it doesn't hide the fact that there was a 1980 proclamation in General Conference, and it also doesn't hide the fact that this new proclamation kind of resembles that proclamation. In fact, it says this, the 1980 proclamation most closely resembles the one President Nelson introduced Sunday. During the 1980 General Conference, the church celebrated 150 years since its organization by issuing a proclamation from a reconstructed log home on the site of the Peter and Mary Whitmer Farm in Fayette, New York. So they're not hiding this fact. They're actually mentioning it out in public, and I give them credit for that. And to be totally honest with you, I have forgotten the fact that there was a proclamation in 1980. This is not something that stuck in my memory, and it may have to do with the fact that I didn't actually watch that general conference. I heard about it later, but I'm over there in Japan. It's 1980. It's April of 1980. I was actually in Himeji, Japan at the time. I remember that because I was there for the famous Cherry Blossom Festival. There's wonderful cherry blossoms in Japanese. Those are sakura. And that's where I was in April of 1980. But I was not in the place where I could watch General Conference or listen to General Conference. So I found out about this 
only after the fact. And as I say, I did not remember that there was a proclamation until the church pointed it out to me and actually gave a link on their website to the 1980 proclamation. So I want to give the church credit for that, for not trying to hide this and make it look like this is totally new stuff coming out, but being upfront and transparent about the fact that this is really kind of just a rehash of what happened 40 years ago. I'm going to play paragraph by paragraph President Nelson from the Sacred Grove reading this new proclamation. And then after each paragraph, I'm going to make a few comments. Okay, play the tape. We solemnly proclaim that God loves his children in every nation of the world. God the Father has given us the divine birth, the incomparable life, and the infinite atoning sacrifice of his beloved Son, Jesus Christ. By the power of the Father, Jesus rose again and gained the victory over death. He is our Savior, our exemplar and our redeemer. Okay, that's the first paragraph. And all it has to do with is Jesus Christ. President Nelson is playing the Jesus card hard and fast at the very beginning of this proclamation. He wants to make it really clear that this goes along with the logo, the new church logo that has an image of Jesus Christ in it. It is really important to President Nelson to focus on this. And he devotes the entire first paragraph of a proclamation that is about the restoration of the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ to Jesus Christ alone. It's not like the 1980 proclamation didn't mention Jesus Christ at all. You heard me read it and it was mentioned several times, but it got nothing near the stress in the 1980 proclamation as it does here in the 2020 proclamation. Once again, it appears somewhat desperate on the part of President Nelson, desperate to get other people, non-members of the church, to understand, recognize, and agree with us that we do believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of God. Now, the next two paragraphs deal with the first vision. You remember that the 1980 proclamation talked about the first vision as well. This part of the proclamation is divided into two paragraphs. I'm going to play the first paragraph dealing with the first vision first because President Nelson is doing something very interesting here. Play the tape. 200 years ago, on a beautiful spring morning in 1820, young Joseph Smith seeking to know which church to join, went into the woods to pray near his home in upstate New York, USA. He had questions regarding the salvation of his soul and trusted that God would direct him. Okay, hang on a second. Now notice what President Nelson does here. Even in this proclamation about the first vision, he is incorporating elements from the 1832 account and the 1838 account. You remember that one of the big differences between the 1832 account and subsequent accounts has to do with the reason that Joseph Smith went to the Grove to pray in the first place. In the 1832 account, it wasn't to know which church to join or which church was right. Instead, it was to receive forgiveness for his sins. It is only in subsequent accounts that that purpose changes, and now Joseph is not interested in forgiveness for his sins. He needs to know which church is true, a fact, by the way, in the 1832 account, which he already understood and recognized from his study of the Bible prior to going to the Grove to pray, which is why when he goes to the Grove to pray in the 1832 account, he's not asking which church is true. He's already figured it out. Instead, he is convicted by a knowledge of his sins, and he needs to go to pray to God for forgiveness, which he receives in the 1832 account. So notice exactly what it is that President Nelson is saying here and the language that is being carefully and even craftily used. He says, 200 years ago on a beautiful spring morning in 1820, young Joseph Smith, 
seeking to know which church to join. Okay, that's the 1838 account, right? That's not the 1832 account. That's the standard version. That's the one we've heard forever in the church. But he goes on, seeking to know which church to join, went into the woods to pray near his home in upstate New York, USA. And then he says he had questions regarding the salvation of his soul and trusted that God would direct him. See there, all of a sudden, he's putting in the 1832 account the reason for Joseph Smith to go to the woods to pray. The 1832 account says he had questions regarding the salvation of his soul, and now he's blending the two together to make of them one seamless whole, when in reality, if you look at them side by side, they contradict each other. This is a very carefully crafted document. And here, the purpose is, once again, like Elder Ballard's talk that I talked about in an earlier podcast, to make an amalgamation of the different accounts in such a way as to iron out the wrinkles, smooth the tensions, and erase the contradictions between the accounts. So now we have a definite pattern being established in how the church is going to respond and begin to relate the accounts of the first vision. No longer are they going to rely solely on the 1838 account in the Joseph Smith history. Instead, they're going to continue to present an amalgamation of the different accounts in this manner. We've seen this in the Saints book. We've seen it in Elder Ballard's talk in General Conference, and now we're seeing it again in the new proclamation on the Restoration. This appears to be the plan of how the church is going to approach the first vision from this time going forward. And once again, the reason they're doing this is because the cat got out of the bag and because of the internet and more and more members finding out about these different accounts, the church has been dragged kicking and screaming to the transparency table. And so they're not going to be completely transparent, but as Elder Ballard said in a previous talk, they're being as transparent as they know how to be. So that's something that I think that is quite notable in that first paragraph dealing with the first vision. So let's play the second paragraph now dealing with the first vision. In humility, we declare that in answer to his prayer, God the Father and his son, Jesus Christ, appeared to Joseph and inaugurated the restitution of all things as foretold in the Bible. In this vision, he learned that following the death of the original apostles, Christ's New Testament church was lost from the earth. Joseph would be instrumental in its return. Okay, now that is the second paragraph dealing with the first vision. Let me note here that once again, this is the 200th anniversary of the first vision. This is a proclamation in commemoration of that bicentennial of the first vision. And yet in this proclamation, the first vision is only going to get two paragraphs out of the entire proclamation. It will go on from there to talk about other elements of the restoration afterward, but the first vision itself gets just two paragraphs. Another thing is this last line in the second paragraph about the first vision, which I just played, which says that in the vision, he learned that following the death of the original apostles, Christ's New Testament church was lost from the earth. Joseph would be instrumental in its return. Now that's the 1842 account of the first vision. That's the only account that says that God gave him a promise that if he were faithful, he would be an instrument in God's hands in restoring Christ's church to the earth. So in these two paragraphs, we get elements of the 1832 account, the 1838 account, and the 1842 account all seamlessly woven together to form one brief narrative. Also, you probably noticed that in that second paragraph was the reference to the restitution of all things from the Bible, Acts chapter 3, verse 21, which is the same passage that was quoted in the 1980 proclamation. Now going on to the fourth paragraph, this deals with priesthood restoration, just as the 1980 proclamation dealt with priesthood restoration. Play the tape. We affirm that under the direction of the Father and the Son, heavenly messengers came to instruct Joseph 
and reestablish the church of Jesus Christ. The resurrected John the Baptist restored the authority to baptize by immersion for the remission of sins. Three of the original 12 apostles, Peter, James, and John, restored the apostleship and keys of priesthood authority. Others came as well, including Elijah, who restored the authority to join families together forever in eternal relationships that transcend death. Okay, so that is the paragraph about priesthood restoration, where like the 1980 version, it talks about the Aaronic priesthood being restored through John the Baptist and also the Melchizedek priesthood being restored through Peter, James, and John. It is a point of minor interest that the new proclamation chooses not to use the term Aaronic priesthood or Melchizedek priesthood as the 1980 proclamation did. One other difference is that the new proclamation adds the appearance of Elijah. That was not mentioned in the 1980 proclamation. It adds the appearance of Elijah to its recounting of events in church history that were part of the Restoration. Now the next paragraph goes on to talk about the Book of Mormon and the translation of the Book of Mormon by Joseph Smith. Once again, there's a direct analog to the 1980 proclamation. Let's play the tape on that. We further witness that Joseph Smith was given the gift and power of God to translate an ancient record. The Book of Mormon, another testament of Jesus Christ. Pages of this sacred text include an account of the personal ministry of Jesus Christ among people in the Western Hemisphere soon after his resurrection. It teaches of life's purpose and explains the doctrine of Christ, which is central to that purpose. As a companion scripture to the Bible, the Book of Mormon testifies that all human beings are sons and daughters of a loving Father in heaven, that He has a divine plan for our lives, and that His Son, Jesus Christ, speaks today as well as in days of old. Okay, a few comments about this passage. First, I understand that it is a brief recounting of the translation of the Book of Mormon. Notice, however, that it does talk about the Book of Mormon as a translation. It is not a revelation. The Book of Mormon was not revealed to Joseph Smith, as has been the trend in a number of general conference talks and other church materials. They are going back to the dominant narrative and fixing that dominant narrative of it being an actual translation into this new document. This seems to be the work of someone who is interested in maintaining the status quo into future generations. When it's talking about the translation of the Book of Mormon and how it was accomplished, it uses the age-old phrase of the gift and power of God. It does not talk about any stones being used, and God forbid, no stones being put in the hat, and Joseph Smith placing his face over the hat and then dictating the Book of Mormon. Now, once again, I recognize this proclamation is supposed to go over things in brief, not in detail but I do have to note that in passing. It goes on to say, as a companion scripture to the Bible, the Book of Mormon testifies that all human beings are sons and daughters of a loving Father in heaven. Now I have to stop here for a second, because technically, no, well, not even technically, the Book of Mormon does not teach, it does not testify, that all human beings are sons and daughters of a loving Father in heaven. That doctrine is nowhere in the Book of Mormon. It is in fact somewhat glaringly absent from the Book of Mormon. That was a later doctrine that was added to church teaching and not necessarily even 
by Joseph Smith. It seems to have been something that may have been bubbling under the surface toward the end of Joseph Smith's life, and it only found expression after Joseph Smith was dead in the writings of other church leaders. So definitely, the Book of Mormon does not testify that all human beings are sons and daughters of a loving Father in heaven, in contradiction to what is stated in the New Proclamation. The Book of Mormon does, however, teach that God has a divine plan for our lives and that His Son, Jesus Christ, speaks today as well as in days of old. So they got two out of three correct in synopsizing what the Book of Mormon teaches. And in the words of Meatloaf, two out of three ain't bad. It goes on now in the next paragraph to talk about the organization of the church. Play the tape. We declare that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints organized on April 6, 1830, is Christ's New Testament church restored. This church is anchored in the perfect life of its chief cornerstone, Jesus Christ, and in his infinite atonement and literal resurrection. Jesus Christ has once again called apostles and has given them priesthood authority. He invites all of us to come unto him and his church to receive the Holy Ghost, the ordinances of salvation, and to gain enduring joy. So that's one paragraph, and in that one paragraph, they combine the restoration of the church together with the call to repentance to come and join the church. A couple of comments about this. He starts off by saying, we declare that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints organized on April 6, 1830. Well, not technically correct, because when it was organized on April 6, 1830, it was not the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It was actually the Church of Christ. That was the name of the church then. It was subsequently changed a few years later to the Church of the Latter-day Saints. Jesus Christ wasn't in it. That's why that name, the Church of the Latter-day Saints, appears on the Kirtland Temple, because that was the official name of the church at the time of the dedication of the Kirtland Temple in 1836. It was not until 1838 eight years after the church was organized that the Lord gave a revelation to Joseph Smith in which God finally settled on what the real name of his church should be, and that was, drumroll please, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It also hits again on the Jesus theme, talking about the church is anchored in the perfect life of its chief cornerstone, Jesus Christ. Remember, Jesus Christ is standing on the cornerstone in the new logo. See how these tie together? And in his infinite atonement and literal resurrection. And then it says, Jesus Christ has once again called apostles and has given them priesthood authority. Now, I know that this is the dominant narrative. This is the teaching of the LDS church, that when men are called to be apostles in the LDS church, even though it's all these guys getting together and calling some man from leadership of the church into the apostleship of the church, that that somehow equates to Jesus Christ doing it because these guys are inspired by Jesus Christ, so what they do is what Jesus Christ would do. They're doing it by his inspiration, so the person they pick is being picked by Jesus Christ. I understand that that is where they're coming from. It is interesting, though, when you think about historically how the original 12 apostles in this dispensation were chosen in 1835. It was not by Joseph Smith. It was not by, apparently, revelation. Instead, he gave that task to the three witnesses to the Book of Mormon. It was Oliver Cowdery, it was David Whitmer, it was Martin Harris who got together and through whatever means they used, I'm sure they prayed for inspiration and guidance in so doing, but they picked 12 men to be the first apostles in the LDS church. That's how the original quorum of the 12 apostles was chosen was through the decision of the three witnesses. And since that time, the apostles have replenished themselves when one dies or leaves or apostatizes or whatever might happen. When there's a vacant seat, then they replenish that seat and they fill that seat by coming together and deciding on somebody new 
to fill that seat. So I understand that's the position of the church. I'm just saying that from the outside, when you look at it, it really doesn't look like Jesus Christ personally calling apostles, at least not the way he did in the New Testament where he actually did it personally. I mean, he was there. He called his 12 apostles, right? It's done very differently in the LDS church today. And I don't want to make too much out of that. I'm just pointing out something that I see as a little bit of a discrepancy, especially when earlier in the same paragraph, he says that we declare that this church, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, organized on April 6, 1830, is Christ's New Testament church restored. So here in this new proclamation, it's being made very clear what it was that I grew up hearing in the church is that this church is exactly the same as the church that Jesus Christ established 2,000 years ago. We've got prophets, we've got apostles, the same way they did then, and it is the same in every respect as a church we read about in the New Testament. Now that has a number of problems. I'm not going to go into all of them here. One of the first of which is that most Bible scholars, when you look at the New Testament, are pretty much agreed that Christ never really even established a church. And when I read the Gospels, I'm not able to find him establishing a church. The establishment of a church was done by people who believed in Jesus Christ after Jesus Christ was gone, and they established a church, and they used his teachings and his sayings and his doctrines and his principles as a basis for establishing the church. The idea that Jesus Christ himself established a church is not something that's really taught in the New Testament, but it's definitely a principle that the LDS church has enunciated over the years and is now enshrined in this new proclamation in order to lay the groundwork for saying that this church, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, is the same church that Jesus Christ established in the New Testament. And you know, whenever I hear that, I think of this wonderful talk. It was on audio tape. It was also in printed form. I think it was by a guy named Floyd Wesson or Weston. And it was called The 17 Points of the True Church. And this made the rounds back in the 1970s when I was a new member. I remember getting a tape with him talking about it. And the idea behind this tape and this story, which was an incredible story, unfortunately it ended up being apocryphal because it didn't really happen. But the, the idea behind the story was that Floyd Wesson, the guy who's telling the story, is not a Mormon when he's in college. And he's telling the story about when he's in college, he's not a Mormon. He's got all these other friends who are not Mormons either. And they all decide they're going to study the New Testament and they're going to come up independently with different points that are signs of the true church, i.e. signs of Jesus Christ's church as he established it in the New Testament. And I believe the story goes that each of them, or all of them together, I can't remember this part, but they came up with 17 points of the true church. And those points he listed out and he gave scriptural references for them. One of them, by the way, was an unpaid ministry. I remember that much. That's interesting. But they came up with 17 points and they went to college. They graduated from college. They went on their separate ways. They went on with their lives and they moved to different areas of the country. And then sometime later, many years later, they all got back together probably for a reunion. And what they found out was that each of them had taken these 17 points with them into their lives. And they went around to different churches. They compared the different churches against these 17 points that they'd come up with in college. And each and every one of those guys, guess what? Yeah, you know it. You know it. They all joined the Mormon church. They all joined the LDS church. So this is his way of showing how well the LDS church fits each and every point that they had identified from the New Testament. And that therefore it is definitely the New Testament church restored. It is the true church. And actually, I'm going to look for this for just a second here and see if my memory is correct. Here it is. <laughs> 17 points of the true church. Oh my gosh, it looks like it's still available from Deseret Book. You can find this at DeseretBook.com. Here's the synopsis. In this classic talk, Floyd Weston, 
I remembered his name, recounts the extraordinary experience of five college friends. Using only the New Testament as their guide, Floyd and four of his friends from college identified the key doctrines and organization of the church established by Christ, separated by the events of World War II and the pursuits of careers and families. The friends reunite and discover that in their individual quests to find the true church as described in the New Testament, each had joined the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, dun, da, da, an inspiring and faith-promoting story and unfortunately one that never really happened however i am thrilled by the fact that i remember this so well it has been decades since i even thought about this talk i remember the name floyd weston i remember the basic idea of the story <laughs> which frankly uh, kind of makes me wonder why it was that joseph smith had so much trouble keeping the details of his first vision straight in subsequent accounts but be that as it may some people have better memories than others Mine is really not that good, and it's getting worse as my age progresses, and that's why I'm so thrilled at this moment to see that the description of the talk at DeseretBook.com is pretty much exactly the way I described it to you initially. Oh my gosh. Okay, hang on. I'm sorry. I, I just found that there's an article about this on the Fair Mormon website, and it has to do with the criticism of the 17 points of the true church. Someone wrote the Fair Mormon Ask the Apologist service saying this, my question is about the fellow who wrote the 17 points of the true church and the validity of his story. I stumbled into a website that talked about a particular fireside this man gave where someone approached him on the truth of his story. Afterwards, the man was told by a stake president that he must confess that he lied because he had been essentially found out and that many details of his story were fabricated. This question goes on. My testimony is in no way based on the 17 points and I feel that it is overused and overemphasized within the church, but regardless, I would like to know about the information claiming that his story is false. And here's the first line of the response by Fair Mormon. It makes little difference for the church if Weston made up his story. <laughs> okay, when you start off your answer, that way you know that he made it up. It makes little difference if he made it up, so obviously he did. Since the truth or falsity of Weston's personal history has no bearing whatsoever on the truth of the restored gospel. Okay, they're basically folding on this one. It does sound like he probably made it up. I mean, it does sound like a fantastic story. It's wonderful. It's too good to be true. And that's the problem. It's too good to be true. And unfortunately, it looks like it ended up not being true. Oh, this is good. I'm sorry. I've got to read this to you. This is classic fair Mormon stuff. An ex-Mormon critic of the church has claimed that Weston fabricated the details of how the 17 points were created. For example, Weston claims to have developed the list when he was a student at Caltech and that during this time Albert Einstein visited the school. The critic is charged that Weston was actually at Caltech several years too late to see Einstein's visit. Okay, well there's a factual discrepancy, right? Fair game. And then it goes on to say, what this has to do with the validity of Weston's 17 points is not entirely clear, but it seems that the critic is attempting to discredit Weston's list and by implication the church by discrediting Weston himself. This would be a form of the ad hominem fallacy. Okay, so now they're going to talk about logical fallacies and about how trying to discredit... <laughs> this is not an ad hominem fallacy. An ad hominem fallacy would be if they said that Floyd Weston is a liar and you can't believe anything he says. That would be an ad hominem fallacy. It's not an ad hominem fallacy to point out factual discrepancies between the way he recounts the experience and historically what really happened and whether he could have actually been there when Albert Einstein visited visited Caltech. That is not an ad hominem fallacy. What is an ad hominem fallacy, however, is the first line there that I read in this Fair Mormon article, where they write, an ex-Mormon critic of the church has claimed that Weston fabricated the details of how the 17 points were created. When you call this person an ex-Mormon critic, that is an ad hominem 
fallacy. So it's amazing that the people at Fair Mormon, or at least the people who wrote this particular article, misidentify an ad hominem fallacy when they feel it is being used to discredit the church, but they can correctly use an ad hominem fallacy when they are trying to defend the church by calling the person who pointed out this discrepancy in the details an ex-Mormon critic of the church. Good job, guys, at Fair Mormon. Keep up the great work. Okay, I'm sorry, I've got to get back to this uh, this new proclamation. I got off there on that very interesting, at least to me, tangent. Okay, we're almost at the end of this proclamation. So let's play the next paragraph, shall we? 200 years have now elapsed since this restoration was initiated by God the Father and His beloved Son, Jesus Christ. Millions throughout the world have embraced a knowledge of these prophesied events. Okay, now here's the important part in this otherwise mundane paragraph. One of the main themes that President Nelson is trying to get across is that this restoration is ongoing. We keep hearing now, more recently, the phrase ongoing restoration. This is an ongoing restoration. It's not something that was restored through Joseph Smith, and that pretty much took care of everything, which is what I heard for decades after I joined the church. And it was consistently said that really all the revelation that we needed was received through Joseph Smith, and everything else after that was pretty much maybe just fine-tuning, maybe a little revelation here to give blacks the priesthood or something like that. But really, everything that we needed had already been received through Joseph Smith, who was the prophet with a capital T and a capital P, the prophet Joseph Smith. It is only recently, in the last several years, that we're starting to hear this talk about an ongoing restoration. And this is happening at the same time as President Nelson is claiming to receive all these revelations about changing different policies in the church, taking church from three hours to two hours, combining the high priest with the elders quorum, changing the rules on who can witness baptisms both in the temple and outside the temple, changing the youth program around a little bit, changing the home teaching to ministering, which was basically just lowering the bar on the expectations of the home teaching program, calling it a different name ministering in hopes that if the members of the church can't actually do the home teaching, hopefully they'll be able to do the less difficult requirements of ministering. Wonder how that's going. But once again, there's this focus on this ongoing restoration and this concept is placed into this new proclamation at more than one point. This is one of those points. 200 years have now elapsed since this restoration was initiated by God. So the restoration was begun 200 years ago and it's ongoing today is the implication. Let's play the next paragraph. We gladly declare that the promised restoration goes forward through continuing revelation. The earth will never again be the same as God will gather together in one all things in Christ. Okay, so there it is. There it is. We gladly declare that the promised restoration goes forward through continuing revelation. This is a huge difference between the 1980 proclamation and the new proclamation. We want to make it very clear, or at least President Nelson wants to make it very clear, that this restoration is ongoing through new revelation, which he is receiving like hell isn't having any. The door is open to change, all sorts of changes within the LDS Church, which President Nelson is going to inaugurate and initiate, and which he has done a great deal of already. It was President Hinckley in a televised interview that he had when he was asked about what kinds of revelations he received, and his response, as I recall it, was that really we have in the church a vast reservoir of revelation. We don't really need a lot of new revelation. We've got plenty to suit our purposes and to steer us clear, and I'll see if I can find that audio clip and play it here if I can. 
Well, I did some looking around and I'm sorry to say I could not find the actual audio clip from the interview. I remember hearing Gordon B. Hinckley saying it. It was aired. I cannot find the audio of that interview, but I did find a transcript of the interview. In fact, there were two interviews in which he made similar statements along the lines that I recall. The first is from an interview conducted on April 13, 1997 for the San Francisco Chronicle. In that interview, the question was asked, and this belief in contemporary revelation and prophecy. As the prophet, tell us how that works. How do you receive divine revelation? What does it feel like? The answer from Gordon B. Hinckley was as follows, and I quote, Let me say first that we have a great body of revelation the vast majority of which came from the prophet Joseph Smith. We don't need much revelation. We need to pay more attention to the revelation we've already received. Now, if a problem should arise on which we don't have an answer, we pray about it, we may fast about it, and it comes, quietly, usually no voice of any kind, but just a perception in the mind. And then he likens it to Elijah hearing the still small voice and concludes by saying, Now that's the way it works. So there's Gordon B. Hinckley saying that we have a great body of revelation. We don't really need a whole lot more revelation. And the second quote is from an interview that aired on November 9th, 1997. The question is being asked of President Hinckley once again about what it's like for him to receive revelation for the entire church. His answer is, once again quoting, Now we don't need a lot of continuing revelation. We have a great basic reservoir. I even remembered the word reservoir. We have a great basic reservoir of revelation. But if a problem arises, as it does occasionally, a vexatious thing with which we have to deal, we go to the Lord in prayer. We discuss it as a first presidency and as a council of the twelve apostles. We pray about it. And then comes the whisperings of a still small voice. And we know the direction we should take and we proceed accordingly. So there's not one, but two instances of President Hinckley on record as saying essentially the same thing. Yes, every now and again, we might receive a revelation on a vexatious issue in the church, but by and large, we've got a great reservoir, a great body of revelation received through Joseph Smith by which the church operates. And we don't really need a whole lot more in addition to that. But this is a very different kind of attitude toward the need for ongoing revelation and an ongoing restoration from President Hinckley as it is with President Nelson and as we find it now embedded in the new proclamation. It is there for future generations. We'll see how interested the next president is in receiving revelation in the same way that President Nelson claims to. It is clear that prior to him, with President Monson and other prophets going back many generations, there was not this emphasis or this claim on receiving revelation at the drop of a hat, that every single tinkering or change in the structure or policy or programs of the church, this is revelation from God, and I'm receiving it at night, being woken up in bed, telling Wendy to get out of the room, and writing it down as the light beams down from the ceiling. Finally, the last paragraph. Let's play that, shall we, President Nelson? With reverence and gratitude, we as his apostles invite all to know, as we do, that the heavens are open. We affirm that God is making known his will for his beloved sons and daughters. We testify that those who prayerfully study the message of the restoration and act in faith will be blessed to gain their own witness of its divinity and of its purpose to prepare the world for the promised second coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Okay, so a couple of things here. First off, he hits this theme again. We affirm that God is making known his will 
for his beloved sons and daughters. So that's three times in this one proclamation in three consecutive paragraphs that he talks about this idea of an ongoing restoration. The first paragraph I mentioned, he said the restoration was initiated by God. The next paragraph, he says that the restoration goes forward through continuing revelation. And now he says in the final paragraph, we affirm that God is making known his will for his beloved sons and daughters. He calls for everybody like the 1980 revelation did to gain their own witness of its divinity and of its purpose to prepare the world for what? Well, this is what President Nelson ends the proclamation with, which is the promised second coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, this part is also very interesting to me because we know if we've been paying attention to the sermons and the talks that President Nelson and his wife, Wendy, have been giving even before he became the president of the church, that they have been hitting this idea of Jesus Christ coming is right around the corner, harder than any president or apostle I can recollect. And yet, strangely, in the middle of a worldwide pandemic where thousands and thousands and thousands of people are dying from the COVID-19 virus, all of a sudden, President Nelson isn't talking about how Jesus Christ is coming right around the corner. Now, I haven't gone through every single talk in general conference. Maybe he does touch on this, but other people who have listened to everything he said, and I've listened to most of it, I think I've listened to everything he said in general conference, he does not hit this theme. It's mentioned here at the very end of the proclamation, but in a vague and kind of ambiguous way that we need to prepare the world for the promised second coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the kind of stuff we've heard all the time throughout the entire history of the LDS church. Oh, and by the way, by the way, Sometimes people look back at the New Testament church and they read the New Testament and they read sayings in that, sayings attributed to Jesus, other sayings from Paul in his epistles, where it looks for all the world like they are expecting Jesus Christ to come back again in their lifetime, but he doesn't. And so then the next generation is expecting Jesus to come back in their lifetime, but he doesn't. And then, so the next generation is expecting Jesus to come back in their lifetime and he doesn't. And pretty soon you got 200 years from that first generation and Jesus still hasn't come. And of course, it's been 2,000 years now, but sometimes scholars focus on that first 200 years and sometimes people ask, how was it that they could possibly keep this belief alive? Jesus didn't come the first generation when he was expected to come. He didn't come the second generation when they gave him a little bit of leeway. He didn't come the third generation and yet they still believe that Jesus is going to come again. Well, what is interesting about the LDS church is that we can see the same pattern repeating itself. I don't know if I can give an explanation except maybe hope springs eternal, but in the same way that the first 200 years of Christianity continued to expect Jesus to come in spite of the fact that he didn't show up, in spite of the fact that they accepted and believed that he would show up within their lifetime, even so we can see the same thing happening in the LDS church. Jesus Christ was supposed to come within Joseph Smith's lifetime. He was supposed to come in that generation. You can look at the revelations in the Doctrine and Covenants, which say as much. I mean, it was God himself who gave the official name of the LDS Church as the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It's there right in the name of the church. And yet he didn't come in that lifetime. He didn't come in the next generation. He didn't come in the next generation. We're now 200 years removed from the first vision. Jesus Christ still hasn't come, but we're still talking about the fact He's going to come real soon, and we have to prepare the earth for his coming. That's how this proclamation ends. But getting back to President Nelson and not really talking very much about the last days in this general conference, when he has talked about it, to the nth degree in prior addresses and in prior statements he's made. Why is it? It just seems like a strange disconnect that now, all of a sudden, in the middle of a worldwide pandemic, which many people are seeing as a sign of the times and a sign that Jesus really is getting ready to come down to the planet and start mopping up, President Nelson decides to not 
talk about it. It's a strange thing. And I don't know why that is. I would have to speculate as to why that is. Right now, I'm just observing that it seems to be the case, and it's kind of a strange thing to have happening or to have not happening. I don't know if this has anything to do with whether President Nelson really believes it when he's saying that Jesus Christ is coming really, really soon, as he's done prior to this general conference. If he really believed it, wouldn't he be looking at this, this COVID-19 virus, as a sign of that and saying, yeah, he's coming really, really soon. But perhaps he doesn't want to be locked in that tightly to a time frame, because I think he really understands that this COVID virus is going to abate. It may take a while. It may take longer than any of us want, but it is going to abate. Jesus isn't going to come. Maybe he really recognizes that in his heart, and he doesn't want to tie the COVID-19 virus into being a sign of the time because when it goes away and Jesus doesn't come, then he's going to look kind of silly. And to the extent that that might be true, I think that's probably wise on his part. I don't think Jesus is coming during this coronavirus pandemic. I don't think he's going to be coming shortly after. I don't think he's going to be coming at all. And so it's probably a good move on President Nelson's part to not tie Jesus' second coming to this pandemic. And yet I have to look at it in juxtaposition to all of his other statements that Jesus is coming really, really soon. It seems that he wants to be able to continue to say that Jesus is coming really, really soon. And I have no doubt that he believes that. But he wants to say that Jesus is coming really, really soon, strategically not linking it to any actual event that's going on, no matter if it's a worldwide pandemic. Because as soon as you link it to something that's going on, now you are committed, really committed, to the proposition that Jesus is coming again really soon. So like I say, I don't know if this is another instance in which President Nelson is indicating his lack of faith in what it is that he's teaching. I just present it as a suggestion that this may be the case. Okay, I think that's it. We've gone over the 1980 proclamation on the restoration, and now we've gone over the 2020 proclamation on the restoration. And I think we've seen that there really is not a dime's worth of difference between them. It appears to be a proclamation for the sake of having a proclamation, one that is suitable for framing, and which I expect will bear at the top of the other signatories, the signature of Russell M. Nelson, and this will cement his place in LDS history. So that's all I have for tonight. Remember, in the midst of this global pandemic, wash your hands frequently with soap and hot water, stay away from crowds, maintain good social distancing of at least six feet from the nearest person. If you have to cough, cough into your elbow and not upon your neighbor. And together, we will lick this coronavirus. And you know, all of this bouncing back and forth and comparing the elements of the 1980 Proclamation on the Restoration versus the 2020 Proclamation on the Restoration has put me in mind of a certain song that became very popular back when I was 12 years old. It was featured in a movie starring Burt Reynolds and John Voight. It was released in December of 1972, and it went all the way, surprisingly enough, to number four on the Billboard Top 100 in 1973. You probably already know the tune I'm talking about. Well, here it is in honor of the dueling proclamations from 1980 and 2020. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air.